Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bumstead to take the corner. And Roy got up. Cannaville. Well taken. Chelsea lead 1-0. Hello and welcome to Football Ramble Book Club with me, Kate Mason. And me, Andy Brassel. This week we have a very special book club for you. Andy and I have been reading Paul Cannaville's Black and Blue. Cannaville was Chelsea's first black player, making his debut in 1982. And the book charts his route to the heights of professional football and back again. With the subtitle, How Racism, Drugs and Cancer Almost Destroyed Me, some of it makes grim reading, but it's a hugely absorbing story and you're carried along by the charm of the man at its heart who feels things deeply and found himself sometimes at sea in a world that wasn't designed to help him. Canneville's torment lasted for years and one experience was especially painful. It came during a reserve game against another London team, Millwall. You see two guys with pillowcases over there and you think, are they for real? No, and you realise, well, how can these kids be allowed in the ground like this? And this is a reserve game. What's wrong with it? And this was Ku Klux Klan. Ku Klux Klan. And I lost my head. I ain't going to say it. As a professional, a professional, I shouldn't have, but I did lose my head. The book opens with Paul Cannaville's first game for Chelsea's first team away at Selhurst Park. The way he talks about the racist shouting that greets him at what should be the best moment of his career is devastating. You want to know more and you want for this man to be all right. Well, the subtitle is correct. It's not just racism he's been battling his whole life. It's been sometimes a life of chaos. And we're so happy to have today Paul Cannaville with us in the Football Ramble studio. Thanks for joining Andy and me. Yes, um, good afternoon. Um, that was a great introduction there, Kat. Okay, uh, <laughs> I have to say, thank you very much indeed. I'm kind of honoured anyway um, to be here. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And it's so we great do. to get a chat, chance to chat to you. Um, would you say you were now... All right, Canners? Um, that's a really good question. Would I say I'm all right? Um, instrumental, um, because I still think about it to this very day. Um, uh, my introduction down at Chelsea um, on that very day you mentioned um, still comes back to me. Um, and whatever 
happened afterwards. Don't get me wrong. And obviously what's happening in football now. So that, in that element, it's still, yeah, kind of reminds me, keeps flashing back to me as such. But um, I still love the club as such. And yeah, I dig in and try to make it as smooth as I can. But um, yeah, it's what goes on right now. It's where I am. If, if we look at that, game you you came on um for Chelsea against Palace at, at Selhurst Park I mean it's it's a really arresting bit in the book I mean I, I I read this book for the second time having read it originally when it, it came out before we did the show and it's still as shocking the the, the the second time you 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 read it so I mean you talk about the the feelings of isolation when you get back in the the, the, the dressing room after that you talk about Colin Pates the captain coming up to you asking how you were. You, you, you talk quite warmly of, of, of John Neal and uh, the coach and how he tried to look after you. Um, but was was that an issue for you, that there were, like, it, it was a very white dressing room and there was no one who could really feel what you feel? Um, to be honest, you know, I didn't think it, of it like that. And um, obviously, as teammates would do, you know what I mean? We console each other and kind of input each other in the game as such. Um, for that bearing, when I came in, I rushed into the changing room and when the rest of the lads came after, it, usually the banter that goes on for after the game is unbelievable. But at this time, silence. Couldn't believe, seriously. And usually when I've seen, been in the changing room, ah, the jokes that have come out of that game, didn't you have them in your pocket? Can it? No, but... It was complete silence. Do you think game. people didn't know what to say to you? Probably didn't. They put, put it was that close. At that, that time, you, you stadium at Sellers Park was that close. The fans mm. were that close. You could hear it. Um, what could they say? How do you feel, Candace? Are you all right, Candace? Whatever. I don't know how I would have been, you know what I mean, felt about it. But um, I, I have to, you mentioned John Neal. He was the one who came and consoled me. And tell me straight those words, man. These are some ignorant people, but it's what you're going to do about it. And he was right. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, I, it was that experience. I've never, ever come across that. And I've played football throughout, that's, for me, throughout the country. Just to talk about how a book like this, because I don't know how many people are aware of how books like yours are put, put together, if you like, can as essentially there'll tend to be a collaboration between a ghostwriter and the subject. So right. you in that case, in this case, it was Rick Glanville, yes. uh, the excellent Chelsea historian. Mm. And we're going to hear from him shortly. But I guess the question that occurred to me is how it felt for you, cost your mind back to when you first spoke to him, how it felt putting, starting to put some of these terrible experiences into words in front of a man who to start with was, was almost a stranger. You know what, I mentioned that therapeutic, and I mentioned that to you earlier, and it was like, um, you got to understand this, when I joined back, or got come back, should I say, back to Chelsea, I was asked to, um, I didn't even know they had a, their own TV station. <laughs> I was like, Chelsea, TV station, don't get me wrong, I've come back after how many years? From 86, 2004 too. Mm. And it was like, oh my God, what happened to the shedding that was taken down? <laughs> the notorious shedding that used to give me the full stick was now, I couldn't be seen no more. And it was like, my gosh, what's going on? Hotels, this is all changed. Do you know what I mean? Stanford Bridge Road, I, that's how I left it. Mm. It's now changed. But I um, met Rick and I've got to praise Rick, you know what I mean? Because it was like, I was just got back. I was, in, you know what I mean? Invited back to Chelsea and I think it was the golden year, the 150, 50th year of such and such an anniversary. And they were trying to get all the old boys together. And I, this time I'd just come back from having cancer. And I wasn't too, no, I mean, just coming with rehab, well, rehabilitation, not rehabilitation, but anyway. Um, going through the um, medicine and my um, treatment, shall I say, chemotherapy treatment. So I think they got in touch with my sister that even told me about it and I was just, yeah, trying to meet the lads, but I didn't get to see the lads because the cab was late <laughs> for some reason and got there where the coach had already left and I was You like, got a bad record with cabs, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, it was like upsetting. It was, you know what I mean? I was really looking forward to it and 
my sister kind of had a go at them and said, no, we're so sorry that he missed that. And you know what I mean? So, and then Rank Rick contacted me and, and I couldn't believe when Rick, when he said like, look, love to do a book. I said, what do you mean by a book? He said, your autobiography. I went, what? No, 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 no. But you've got to understand this. I had my troubles obviously with cancer and with drugs and I, I was embarrassed. I didn't really want anybody to know. And that especially the whole world to know, because obviously that information would be in the book. And for me, it was like, oh, he said, look, think about it. And I was like, hmm. And it was getting there, think about it. And I was like, oh my God. You know what? For what I was going through when I was in rehab and I was talking to my counsellor, and that was the first time I was sharing a lot, which helped me. It helped me so much mm. that I was being able to be open and sharing because I didn't used to talk about anything and share with nobody. Um, that was how me and my sister was brought up with my mum. It was a case of like, she said like these four walls, you keep everything inside these four walls. So it was a case. Say, you right, Paul? Yeah, I'm fine. And I wasn't fine, but that's how it was. So when Rick's asking me about sharing and about my story, you're thinking, mm, I don't know about that one. But, um, it was, you know what, to get the um, the approval, should I say, or should I say the okay, was from my mum. I had to ask her because a lot of it was about her and how I was growing up. And she played that part. And <laughs> I even chickened out with that because I, I went and asked my sister to go and ask her. I didn't even ask her. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? She said, oh, go on, June, just ask her, tell her about if it's all right. And I was so shocked because it would have been her okay. If she said no, it would have been no. But I was surprised and she said, yeah, go ahead. And I went, what? And when I say that, it was funny because can you imagine, I started to remember, and this is what it was when I say fear of puberty, it was mm. remembering from day young of growing up how it was for you. And I could remember, and it was like, with Rick kind of a dictaphone, I believe you call it. Yeah. He said, take, kind of write it down. I said, no, 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 no. I hate writing, man. So you best come with that dictaphone and this. <laughs> I mean, three hours nonstop chatting away, this and that, that, that. I don't know how you lot do it, to be honest. So you just buy that dictaphone, taking that information and writing down. We did it. How many times? Nearly a month. We did that until he was ready and put it down. And um, I give Rick, it was a case, to be honest. What I wanted was, Rick, I'm a person, I don't read books. Um, I hate reading small print. I hate reading um, this. You have to put it the way I'm talking. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I'm going to be comfortable about this book. It's the way I'm telling you is how it's got to come out. And I think that's what Rick did. He did that. It, you know, that people appreciate it. Boy, it's quite easy. I had people, don't get me wrong, ringing me um, at two, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Canners, man, I'm reading your book. Mm -hmm. Having a bath. I said, I wanted to go to the one chapter and think, oh, I'll put it down. But I couldn't. I wanted to know what was that. I said, put the damn book down, man, and have a bath. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, yeah, yeah Rick's, he'd done his job. He'd done it right. I used to stand in the, the shed and, you know, you'd hear the hooting and booing of black players. And I can remember uh, sometimes, you know, they, they, would, they would boo the black players of, say, Crystal Palace or West Ham. And then our uh, later, you know, even after Paul, our black players would run out and there would be silence. And you're thinking, are you not, you know, are you not putting two and two together here? It's not acceptable to, uh, to boo people for the colour of their skin. So this is Paul's ghostwriter, Rick Glanville, who's a season ticket holder at Chelsea. And that means he was there in the terraces at Stamford Bridge in the 80s. Here's what he remembers. I think the problem was that you felt, you know, you're one person in a in a crowd and there might be 10 or 15 people near you that are doing this. And you didn't feel empowered to speak up personally. Um, and I suppose well, it for, for good or bad, my love of, of the club overrode uh, my preparedness to sort of speak out until I was slightly older and then I would start to say to people, look, there's no need for that, stop that. Don't, you know, it, it's outrageous, you can't do that kind of thing. And, and what really helped was that after Paul had suffered the abuse that he did, 
Pat Nevin, who was such a popular player at the club, uh, scored a goal against the same team that Paul made his debut against, Crystal Palace. And instead of talking about, he was the cameras came up to him afterwards because he scored the winning goal. And he, he said, I don't want to talk about the winning goal. I want to talk about the Chelsea fans who I love, that you cannot keep abusing Paul Canneville. You cannot keep up this racial abuse. And that really empowered those of us who kind of were isolated in there, who hated what was going on and would try and uh, stop people doing it. But it suddenly became, you had the kind of moral high ground because Pat Nevin was backing you in that, in that respect. So you talked about it being a therapeutic process, Paul. And I guess for like a lot of people, you know, talking about your life is, is sort of educational because you're too busy living it sometimes mm. to actually stop and, and, and think about it and look at the bigger picture. When you go back to those early years at Chelsea, when you were suffering some awful abuse and you were young and you were new in a, a really high pressure profession, getting it from Rick's perspective, who was obviously there on the terraces at the time, mm. Did that help you decipher it? Did that help you work some of it out and, and really realise what had gone on, actually? Um, it, uh, it did. It did help because, as you just said, Rick was there on the sideline and obviously could see what I was receiving at the time. Um, I think as well as that, the amount of time, uh, it was free for three years, man. Three years. Um, home and away. Um, it was like... When I started off and I was so excited, I was in the reserves and, you know what I mean? And it was, I was thinking that this is going to be a, a difference, a change, because now coming from non-league, semi-pro now into professionalism, it's going to be hard. But I, it was quite easy. Oh, the balance, I was, you know what I mean, training every day, which I loved it. I was fit myself. And so I'm um, playing games that's, and traveling to, you know, I mean, different stadiums that I used to see in the TV. This was excitement for me, even though it was a reserve game, don't get me wrong, which didn't have so many um, crowds. But yeah, playing football was like on the left, on the right, a striker. I was so, so comfortable um, that I thought, this is how it is. This is the avenue. This is where I want to break into the first team. And it happened after four months, which was quick. Um, and then I thought, yeah, this is it, man. Um, being told, and it was only the day before, that, yeah, you're substitute um, for the Crystal Palace game. What? Yeah. And you know what I mean? <laughs> Boy, mobiles <laughs> made, made money from me, but I tell you that now, because I was finding everybody, <laughs> family members, friends, come on, man, I've got tickets. Don't worry about that. You're there. Yeah, don't worry. Come on, talk me. I'm going to do it. Come on. And I got everybody down. Don't get me wrong. Um, and yeah, it was... Uh, traveling on the on the on the coach and don't get me wrong i've been on the coach but nothing like how it was this coach was like a house to me at a kitchen bar from the lot and it was like this is what you call yeah professionalism yeah it was it's a glance man trust me so you can you you can understand the adrenaline that was happening in me it was like i was so excited and i got to the stadium and you're seeing the crowds forming and coming up saying yeah this is it and um what Rick saw there, trust me, and I don't think anybody knew quite honestly inside what was going on. Um, and my love for football, has, from the age of five, man, from the age of five, that was all it was for me, football. Education didn't come so importantly, even though that was something for my mum and parent that wanted to. But that day, I, I, I will never forget it. Um, it was like a hammer that hit a nail. And um, when the governor, and I thought I'd never get on. And this is how it honestly was. It was like the first half thing, seeing nil-nil. And I've already clocked the right back and thinking, Jesus, I've got this guy in my pocket if I get on there. I knew he couldn't run. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, get me on here. You know what I mean? And time is running out. And you've got to understand, right, and I'm bringing back football how it was. Back then, it was one substitute. One. Hmm. So your manager had to make the decision of when to bring that substitute, whether it's injury, whether it's a change of game. To, compared to today's footballers, six substitutes, use three. 
So I'm looking at, oh my God, it's nil nil, second half coming out. It's nil nil, 25, 75 minutes, 80 minutes, nil nil. And I'm thinking, come on, man, get me on. Let me try and do this game. I'm watching, I'm busting up here. I don't know. And um, I'm thinking, nah, he ain't going to use me. And you get that call. You don't know. Canners. What's that? Go and get warmed up. Oh, <laughs> that was it. Trust me, I am buzzing. Everything's going on. I'm telling you, I can't, I want to get these stretches quick and get on quick. And it was that warm up. And I'm um, just got me back to the crowd and it was just hearing this racial slurs and chatting. I'm thinking, whoa, that couldn't be directed at me. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute. And I think, boy, Crystal Palace fans are raw. I thought, nah, somebody's got to do something there. And it got worse, it got worse. And, I swear, Lord, I, I don't get upset like that. I wouldn't even show in public of me, of me getting upset. And, but I was didn't like it. I, I was getting hurt and I was getting angry. And and to turn around and I saw clearly it wasn't Crystal Palace fans. It was my own fans. It was like, wow. It stopped everything. It stopped every piece of muscle in me just drained. And I hadn't even started yet. I was just... Took the tracksuit off, but I didn't even want to go on the pitch. I di I don't even think if I can remember if I moved from the line at all. All I wanted was wait for the referee to blow his whistle. Um, and that's all I remember. When he blew his whistle, I was off that pitch as quick and straight in the changing room. And like we said earlier. So to say that, I was that was happening even in the away games and home games. And even when I played... Fulham, which was a lug, well, obviously a derby, London derby, when we played Chelsea Fulham, and I scored a great goal. <laughs> that that I heard it wasn't classed as a goal because of Blackpool. I was like, and it, it was going through all that, and then you got to go through your family members because they're telling you why would you want to play for a racist side, and it, me explaining it wasn't the club, man. There's some ignorance, and, you know what I mean? It's them, and then. Like we said, isolated and felt alone because I felt like I had to prove um, twice as better than my teammates to be just to be accepted for the crowd. And that, that yeah, is every time it's like, I I don't know, some pros will tell you, I, I, I thought of the game before it started. I thought the game, if I get that ball, this is what I'm going to do. And it was like, yeah, the crowd, they'll be all right if they see me can do this. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking every time. I was like, come on, Paul, it might not even happen that way. You know what I mean? You might have a bad one. I knew when I got the ball, if that touch wasn't on point, I'm going to have a bad game. That's how it was for me. If it was on, oh, watch out. <laughs> that defender, you're in trouble. That's how it was. Um, every time for me and, um, yeah, some games was all right. Some, you know, medium, but I put every effort that I could. Um, there were some genuine fans. Don't get me wrong. There were some real genuine fans. And I was frightened. I was meeting them after at the gate. And Paul, not all of us are like that. We're behind you. We really are. And I was like, okay. And I ain't going to lie. Some of you just give me the Wrigley Spearmint, you know, the chewing gums. Yeah. Pack it. When they gave it to me, I thought, is that poison? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was like, hmm. I've got to take it because I can't offend. But like, I wouldn't eat it. I swear, Lord, I thought it might have something. I was like, how could you think like that? Because, you know what I mean? Because so paranoid. It was, it really was. It was that turn of scary time. But some genuine supporters, uh, I have to call out John Jewett. Thank you, mate. Um, this guy was a, as a giant, gentle giant, I call him. And, you know what I mean? I know. He stood up in a crowd of skinheads and turned around. And said, He's one of our own. And I've got to give him that. Cause there was some genuine supporters out there. And I know they are. You know what I mean? But um, I think we've kind of eased down, um, not just as a club, but as um, the players to be accepted as it was. Um, and me starting doing the hospitality that I got fans coming round and actually apologising. And that was, that was, you know what? For me, a shock still, because I'd forgotten 
past, uh, accepted it in a way. But obviously you brought it back because you say, Paul, to actually own up and say, I was one that abused you. and I didn't know any, but oh yeah. Really? Man. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. Come up wow. to me and say, look, I was one that abused you. I didn't know any better. I was just following my old man and so forth. And I was like, wow, what do I do here? Do I get angry? It was like, and then I'm like, that's past. But you understand how it felt, yeah? And to relate with that, and if you can't educate your kids now, that's the best thing, you know what I mean? Well, I think let's take a break now and then we're going to talk a bit more about your family after this cool. and perhaps a bit of life after football. Very much. Thanks. There's that in. And my word, Dixon was almost in there again. They've got a corner. Well, a little Pat Nevin, one of the smallest men on the field, really had no right, it seemed, to win that one in the air. But when it he did, and it gave Dixon a half chance, and it provides Chelsea with a corner. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jack Mates Happy Hour is back for a brand new season. It's the podcast where we talk to some of the most exciting people in the world, from Ricky Gervais. In some ways, fame makes you a better person. You know, it's like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God's watching me. But I, I know someone with Everyone else is. <laughs> <laughs> to undercover police officers. Can you see the fading scar there, gentlemen? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. That's where I was stabbed in the neck by a drug dealer once. Or... We just talk about whatever's making us laugh right now. When you think back to school kids' banter, like, it's well funny because of how immature it is. We had this teacher called Mr. McGibbon, and he had this big cushion that he was teaching us how to rugby tackle on. He just ran up to it, rugby tackled it, but landed on top of it, and one of the kids shouted, It's not your wife, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. Listen to Jack Mate's Happy Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Jack Mate's Happy Hour is a Stakhanov production. Welcome back to the book club with Andy Brussel and me, Kate Mason. This week, we're talking about Paul Canaville's book, Black and Blue. We heard from his ghostwriter, Rick Glanville, earlier on in the show about what it felt like to be in the terraces at Stamford Bridge while Canners was playing and being racially abused. We've also talked about how a book like this comes to be written. We can hear from Rick now on how he came to understand something very important about Canners and his relationships. So I actually said to Paul, look, do you mind if I... Uh, to meet your mum a couple of times 
by myself because she might say things that you wouldn't know or that you wouldn't say or she might give a different perspective that will be helpful. So we're sitting in her kitchen and she was really nervous. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, she's this, uh, what was she? She was in her 60s or, or something like that. And she had become a nurse by then. But she said to me the most extraordinary thing. I, I said, how do, you, how do you explain how Paul ended up, how he did going off the rails? And she said, well, you know, um, I didn't realize until I became a nurse uh, and I was sitting in a class and we were talking about pediatrics and they said the first the first thing obviously every child in this that's born needs is love and she said do you know that's the first time I'd realized that I'd never thought about that at all that what a child needs more than anything is love well, this is a bit late. This is like when Paul was in his 40s and um, she'd never felt that he needed love. What she always felt was that he needed kind of guidance and, and kind of, uh, you know, food on the table and told what to do, but never love. And I thought that was, again, something of that uh, to tell her experience. As I said, part of the Windrush generation came here thinking the streets were paved with gold had to work in a factory in terrible conditions and experience racism. And that is all imbued in, in, what, uh, in how Paul ended up. How do you feel hearing that? Uh, um, as, as Rick was explaining that, um, there's been... Um, discussion because um mum shared that with me my sister um she didn't know how to show a love and emotion and it was about just discipline and that's how he was brought up and it, to be honest that's all I wanted really to be shown that the love that motherly love at growing up at that time and I didn't receive it and that's probably why I was in the shell and obviously dad wasn't around um, and probably that's the reason why I kind of strayed and wanted that um, attention, um, whether it was from an older brother, if you had, you know what I mean. But I was the youngest when I went with this group of boys. I was a lamb, really, because I just followed. I wasn't a bad boy. I knew that, but because I wanted the attention, I just followed and got myself in trouble. But um, it was about growing up and coming home and being able to share something with your mum but couldn't because she just found fault in it and if you felt you had difficulty I had to think no why don't you get on with it just do it I think so why was the point of asking her and that's what it was for me and like for that that kind of animosity that kind of grew grew in me that I didn't share with nobody and if, don't get me wrong when I went as I said rehab it was so able to share and open up with the counsellor that it, it made my shoulders, man, a lot more easier because I carried that for a long time. I really did. Um, so, yeah, when what Rick was saying was, was truthful. Um, <laughs> look at what she said, but she's mentioned it. She really did mention it to my sister and she just didn't know how to show that love because how she was brought up in the Caribbean was discipline. Even though she said, no word of a lie, and it's a few months ago, a lie. It was the documentary on um, our skin or out of our skin or something like that with um, Ian Wright. My mum didn't realise what I was going through at the football mm. all that time. And when she told her sister, she said, oh, my God, I feel so. I said, boy. And she got me a text. And I was like, <laughs> as I was here now hearing Rick said that. Yeah bit tearful in my eye because I didn't open up we didn't talk about it so she wanted to know and from hearing it from the documentary she saw that oh my god Paul, what Paul was going through and I didn't yeah it was yeah it was kind of hard so what about your dad I mean he was out of your life for for quite a long time and then after you have one of your best matches mm. for Chelsea away at Sheffield Wednesday where you change the game you meet him afterwards. So yeah. how was 
that that must have been an unbelievable day for you. You don't understand this word that because um, whilst growing up, everybody was telling me, boy, you look like your dad, you look like your dad. And I didn't know because mum, she took every picture down, didn't know what he looked like. Um, so <sighs> to get in touch, obviously, with this, you know, I mean, dad was like, I had so many questions and it was a time that, as you mentioned, it was in Sheffield and we was playing Sheffield Wednesday, that like he lived down there and I thought, that was mostly as well played a part in my life because none of my, mum or dad didn't come to see me play at all football, not even when I was a youngster. And that left, yeah, not sour, it was, it was bitter. What do you make of that then? Why, why did they not want to? Mum didn't see sport as a job. Football, nah, it wasn't educational. Uh-huh. Dad wasn't around, so he didn't know what was going on. Cricket, Dad loved, and I love cricket, don't get me wrong. But um, I really did want, you know, I'm a family member. And I say that because I, it's like I had a second mum and this artist, Stephanie, I mentioned you, I love you. Um, that um, I was always the one on my own when I went and played the young, you know what I mean, the combinations, the districts, the school, mm. everybody had their parents with them, man. But who stood out? Me. And just to have that supporting word, you know what I mean, we're done, son, we're done, mom. you know what I mean, from a parent. I didn't have it. I had it from other parents that come in, well done, played well, good man. And you know what I mean, I went home excited, wanted to share that, but got dropped. And it just quite easily, go and clean up the room. Mm. Uh, yeah, all right. And that's how it was every time. So for mum, she didn't know anything else but discipline. Um, and dad come in where the opportunity, I started to get in touch, we talked. We didn't even really talk because I said, look, when I want to see you, because I had so many questions to ask you. Yeah. why you left and why didn't you come and check us and so forth and I didn't know whether I was going to be angry or not so anyway Sheffield Wednesday it was a case of you know what would you like to come and see me play he said yep I said okay cool you know what I mean and I ain't gonna lie to you I was more nervous about him than the game and it was like I remember Friday distinctly we had a pre-match meal and I must have ate too much man because you know when you eat too much it's like as a footballer, I feel heavy and I, oh my God, I can't run, man. Oh man, I know we got- That's tough on a wide player. You know what? We've got two or three hours, man. And this thing's got to come out, you know what I mean? It was like, like Can I go sweet. and go? Can I yeah, go and go? I swear. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, man. I know I'm going to be sub anyway. I'm so glad. Yeah, pull your sub. I went, oh, I needed that. You know what I mean? Let's get this out, get this out, get it light. So anyway, um, it was constantly thinking about, oh God, what am I going to say to this guy, man? Am I going to angry with him? I'm so forth. Game started, I'm on the sidelines and I swear, Lord, my head was just thinking on him and I saw one attack and they went one nil up, Sheffield wins and I thought, oh, we get back that, don't run that. And then, then they went two nil up and I thought, still, I love the way Chelsea are playing, we can get back that. But when I saw three nil up, I thought, boy, we're out of this game, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was thinking, anyway, yeah, what am I going to tell him, man? Where was he been? Why didn't he come and check us? You know what I mean? And left me with the bag and then this and that. Everything was going from my mind. Anyway, substitute, come on. Cannons, you're straight on. I went, okay. Had to switch on. Bam. And you know what? It's, it's, I got to say, it was like a blessing in disguise. It really was from above for that game to go the way it went. And for me to come in on that second half, receiving the first ball um, to this very day, Joey Jones hitting the ball long. I'm continuing watching that ball and it's heading on for from Kerry then speed. And I followed it into the box and first touch, hit it to the right of the keeper. Three, one, 11 seconds. How, how could that come about? Your dad is here watching you play for the first time. And that's happened. And don't get me wrong, what restructured after that by scoring two, which could have been the winner, okay, yes, gave it a fourth, but he ended for all. Paul scores two, and his dad was there to see that. Man, that to me, <laughs> my man must have done something up above. I'm sorry, because that could have never happened any other day. 
Um, I think the nerves are still racking because I was thinking, oh my God, how am I going to recognise this guy? And I mean, in a player's lounge, <laughs> which was quite easy because he was the only black man. <laughs> so he's like, you must be my dad. All right. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, company. Yeah. Um, you know what? I had everything in my head like, yeah, just make sure you show him the face. Like, yeah. Is the game all right? Yep. How you doing? All right. I thought, oh, this ain't going well. <laughs> all well. I said, like, do you want a drink? Why not? Yeah, all right. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. It calmed me in two lagers. Because uh, I wasn't a lager. I did it. Was it Shandy? I was. And um, since then, um, yeah, we just got on. And we was in touch. And I think, to be honest, it was difficult for my mum to accept that me and dad was now in touch and getting on. Yeah at this time and I didn't understand it but then I understand how she felt look all this time I brought you up and now you're in touch with your dad and you're, you're talking about your dad like and it wasn't the case but mum you are first I know what you've come to you know what I mean and at the time when I was young I didn't realise until now what you've done I'm glad we're in touch um, emotionally it was difficult uh, yeah it was difficult times um, I'll never forget them but it's probably made me who I am today uh, and where I'm going but you, you always seem to have this sense and it's all the way through the book that guiding young people is really important I mean you talked before about how you were surprised going into schools that people knew who you were and since coming through drugs and cancer you've done so much in the community but when you go all the way back to when you first became a professional footballer you were saying in summer You'd go to schools in Hackney and around where you grew up and, and, and get involved there. So it's it's not like you just had to find a purpose through coming through the other side. This was something that was always in your mind, right? It's part of who you always were. It was, you know what? It's funny because um, I think that time period was when I got injured deeply. And obviously, like we, I mentioned, educational. And that's what my mum wanted me to come through that barrier, obviously. And I didn't take it seriously. That when I got injured at the early age of 25, and to be told then, um, Mr. Cannibal, um, don't think you'll be continuing as a professional footballer, it hit home. It really hit home because I'm thinking, well, what else can I do? Because I didn't take nothing else. Um now you're hearing what your mum was trying to, you know I mean, drill into you. And I didn't, I think, oh my God. And that's where I think the pressures of my mental well-being at that time, I, I didn't really realise. And everybody was telling me, are you missing football? And I was yeah, giving it, nah, I don't. I was in denial. Hmm. Like I wasn't missing it, but I was. And um, I didn't realise I got, I was depressed. I got depressed and that's how the drugs got involved and I didn't realise what the drugs were doing. I thought it was enhancing me, that it was making me forget problems, but it wasn't. As soon as that drugs were done, the problem was still there. That going through all that, seeing what I've done um, with football, with cancer, with drugs, that, yeah, I'm given that opportunity to work with kids and actually them listening to me, that was the main point because I couldn't believe it. I could accept when I went into school that they actually were listening. And this is when the teacher said, I can't believe what you do. What do you mean? I said, oh God, I have these kids from nine to three and they don't listen at all. You come in here for an hour and they're silent. <laughs> and they were telling me, please don't go. <laughs> I was like, sorry. You know what I mean? And I do, I love it now. I really do. And the aspects of, look, you can make it. You can get dreams. You can achieve things. Yeah, as much as difficult it can be for us. And I think it's more easier for you now. It was harder for me because we didn't have so much opportunities, but there is a lot now. And you can get assistance with the computer, with the help, with mentors and so forth. So if I'm a mentor now, which I enjoy, don't get me wrong, sharing. Um, favours for me 
because I enjoy. Um, and it's like, we don't get enough. <laughs> I go in the schools and trust me, and I said to you an hour, hour's not enough. Mm. I've got so much to share with you. Mm. It's just like I can't get enough out. And it's So I suppose that's where we probably come around. That's why I formed the Paul Cannibal Foundation. Um, the belief um, in drilling that we drill into the lads and not just boys, the girls too. Um, whether they want to be in sport, because obviously that's my background, but to give them back in the community. Um, and you can start in the early age. Um, I didn't know no different from back when I was growing up. It was a case of just going on the road and thinking that we're having fun, but misbehaving really. <laughs> and you know what I mean? And it, yeah, you, you do realise when you get older and you see those things and your parents are telling you and you're not listening. You have to feel it to realise it. But now, I'm the one now turning around and said, boy, I'm telling you, if you go and do that, you're not going to. But dad, I'm just saying, because I can tell you right now, but when behind my back, you can go and do it, but you're going to feel it. And then I've said, I told you. So now I'm on that receiving end with my mum, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. My parents telling me the same thing. So, But I can conduct it in a way, because my humour it's like I'm a youngster still. <laughs> I know kids, they come but Dad, man, oh, you're so stupid. I said, yeah, but, you know, because I know how it is with you youngsters, man. <laughs> Seriously, they're embarrassed. Not embarrassed. This is my dad. Oh, he's so lovely. <laughs> you know what I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I love it. Don't get me wrong. So I'm clearly like, enjoying life as it is now. Um, got some good people around me with, with the foundation. And it's good where I am, at a place where I am at this time. So we're, we're more than 10 years on now from you haven't finished this book. Is life better than you hoped it would be? It's a positive ending to the book, but is life better now than you ever hoped it would be even at the end of that book? Um, life is um, it's good. Life as what I'm trying to succeed um, can get better. Um, with life regarding racism I want to see a lot more happen with that and I'll always be an activist Do you find it frustrating when you get players of your generation or guys who came through in your generation who are well it was tougher for me so No um, everybody keeps coming about that because it's, oh God, can it, it's tougher there when you was playing and how it's somehow easier. It, don't get me wrong, it should be easier. It's not. And what it is that there's so many avenues, right? And no, when I say avenues, there's a lot more complaints that would have not come out. Yeah. Because the same black players have been like scared or frightened to make any noise about receiving racism through in the club. Mm. And because of that, that discarded of being thrown out. So they've not said nothing. And this is why we're trying to say, we shouldn't be frightened now to put our hand up and say, look, I've received racism and make a point about this. Mm. Um, I think when regards to, we talk about BAM, Black Asian, you know what I'm saying, um, mutual ethnicities. If anyway, pronounce it. Um, equal opportunities. Right now, I don't think black players, Asian players are given equal opportunities in the game today. We've not seen. You tell me when you see a black manager today. I don't care if it's Premiership or Championship. We're black backroom staff. Have you seen it? These are players that have given a service to clubs who love football, who've taken their coaching badge, taken their uniform badge, yeah, and still can't get a job. Why? Yeah. This is where this, and this is hurting. I don't care for me how I feel, it hurts. I'll get wrong. I didn't go for my coaching badge. I didn't. I love what I'm doing now and talking to young kids. And it's not just black kids, white kids, Asian, all kids, showing them their belief and believing them. But I've seen guys that have taken their coaching badge and trying to get into the game and not being allowed. Why is that? Because the face don't fit? Something's wrong there. What are we going to do? 
as I said, it was the second time I've read this book. Um, I read it originally when it came out in, what, 2009? And um, it's very rare that you read a book and it's so impactful the, the, the second time as well. But that is definitely the case. Uh, with black and blue obviously there are a lot of themes that unfortunately are still very germane today um but it's it's a reminder um not only of how far british football has come but how far it's it's got to go and i think it's a really um explicit very um erudite explanation of as paul's told us today exactly how it feels and I think for that reason, as many people as possible should read it. Yeah, it's a wonderful gift to be able to read from your perspective what happened to you many years ago that, as Andy says, and as you've just said, Canners, is is really relevant today, sadly relevant today. Um, there are a lot of things in the book we didn't have a chance to come on to, you know, all about your struggles and the way that you relate so much to the underdog as well. And, and that's one of the things you bring into helping these kids that you work with. And and it's one of the things that makes you so relatable, I think, as well in the book. Um, and yeah, just to echo Andy, I'd encourage everyone um, to read it. Black and Blue by Paul Cannaville. Um, and if if you any of the issues around racism affect you, um, then there's a reporting tool on kickitout.org as well that you can that you can go to. I'd very much encourage people to to look at the work that they do. I know mm. you've you've spoken to them in the past as well, Kenneth. Yes. But all it leaves for us to say is thank you yes, so thank much you. for joining us today, and uh, we're glad to see you doing so well. And we thank hope you. to see you soon. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Anyway. This was a Stakhanov production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.